Do please be seated. So this spring, in Daniel part one, we saw, didn't we, as people turned from God and slid away from him, that the promised land, Judah, was invaded and overpowered, and behind enemy lines, in the first six chapters, Daniel and his friends meet these three kings, each immense in power, and yet each, in their own way, comes into conflict with a kingdom that is even greater than their own. It is a showdown between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God in conflict with one another. And the lesson that we learn from this is every bit as relevant today as it was then when it was written. Where do we go when we feel overpowered by the world? Where do we go if we feel abused, maybe at home, or we feel bullied at work, where do we go? If our freedoms are impinged, when evil abounds around us, when people do things to us against our permission, they corner us, where do we go if the very organs of the state that were designed to serve and protect are turned against us, where then do we turn? We pick up the story in chapter 7. Please do have Daniel 7 open in front of you. To say it's weird is a spectacular understatement, so you'll want it open in front of you as we start to see what it all means. Chapter 7, verse 1, Daniel. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head. Same Daniel. Same place, same time, same kings, making the same point that he's been making all along. But the way the point is expressed is about to change dramatically and get spectacularly weird. Uh, Dreams are weird. Godly dreams are really weird. And the genre of this second half of Daniel is apocalyptic. And that means really, really weird. So we've got something weird made weirder, expressed weirdly. Uh, Apocalypse, a word that does not exactly fill people with a sense of comfort. Uh, Maybe, as I say that this is an apocalypse, you start to think of of zombies or some sort of dystopian future book written by George Orwell or, you know, Huxley or what have you. Maybe uh, for you the word uh, apocalypse reminds you of Marlon Brando sweating in a chair, apocalypse now. I'll resist the impersonation. (laughs) But uh, uh, that was a micro-impersonation. Biblically, when uh, we hear this word apocalypse, it has a a very different meaning. Overused as it is today, environmentalists telling us, you know, this uh, glacier is an apocalyptic thing. Well, yeah, when we look at the Bible, the word apocalypse is, is not really so much about the end but more about the way in which something about the end is revealed before the end. It's uh, a word that actually just means revelation. It's about making things known. The book of Revelation, for instance, begins with this same word in the original language, apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Revelation and apocalypse, it's the same word, and so it's not really necessarily about the end so much as how we come to find out about the end before it happens. Before we get into it, there's something you need to know about the apocalyptic genre, this style of writing that Daniel chapter 7 and 
all the chapters on from there are in. And that is the style of this writing is highly symbolic. And as we see these symbols emerge, I want to say don't be put off by them. There are numerous symbols in Daniel part two, but we are far, far more used to symbolism than we might realize at this point. Seven of the NFL teams have in their symbols birds or parts of birds. Three of them have horns, two have skulls. These symbols are designed to make a point. Some of you are actually trying to work out which ones they are. (laughs) Did you have the poster in your bedroom wall as a a child? Uh, In the NBA, bulls, bears, bucks, hornets. Uh, In hockey, flames, horns, teeth, all designed to symbolize power. We're very comfortable with these images. Many of us see them every day and even wear the t-shirt. All of these images designed to symbolize power, bulls, bears, bucks, hornets, flames, horse, teeth. There's even, there's even a penguin. <laughs> Scary thing. Perhaps that doesn't seem very frightening to you, a penguin. But if your team is symbolized by a fish, then you should be afraid because that's what they eat for breakfast. You get the point. We're used to symbols. We see them all the time. We know what they mean. We're not that weirded out by them. And understanding the symbols is really important if you are to understand the point. Understanding symbols is important if you are to know how to behave. Just after we moved here, I was driving around and I drove up the road to Swickley up the uh, up the road there, and I saw a sign at the side of the road. It said 65. And I thought, finally, I've been driving around Pennsylvania at this ludicrous pedestrian pace for days. I thought, finally, a sensible speed, 65. And I kept seeing these signs, 65, 65. Oh, great, wonderful. I'll be cautious. I'll do 64 just to be on the safe side. Still not quite sure, you know, of how everything works. And I was weaving in and out of the cars and, you know, giving gestures to people. 64, I thought, I'll be all right, put my foot down, blasting past everybody, wondering why they're all driving so slowly. Till finally I saw a 65 sign right next to another sign of a different shape that said, speed limit, 40. Ah, I get it. It's the road number. Very glad I didn't take the 910, I can tell you. Ludicrous speed. (laughs) As we approach Daniel part two, we've got to know how to read the signs. Otherwise, we're going to get confused. We're going to take a wrong turn. We're going to go straight to the scene of the accident or get booked. We need to know how to understand these signs. They are strange to us the first time we see them, but we're not really all that confused by the idea of signs. We just need to learn some new ones. So here we go. Verse two. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four winds is symbolic of the four compass points, the four corners of the world. It is a global vision that encompasses the whole thing. And the sea is often symbolic of power. And out of the sea in the dream come these four beasts, these four powerful beasts from a powerful place with an implication for the whole known world. The first in verse 4 was like a lion and it had eagle's wings, a hybrid symbol. Many think it it represents Nebuchadnezzar for his ability to be fierce uh, but also to cover great distances in his empire. The uh, 
lion and the eagle. And then in verse 5, behold, another beast in his dream, another symbol, a second one like a bear. And it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Do you remember when the Penguins won the Stanley World Cup in 2017? Do you remember when... Uh, well, sorry, I've conflated it with football for a second. Gone back to type. World Cup. Does, does Canada count as the world? I don't know. When it went... Just a cup. It's just a cup. It's a very big cup. When they won, do you remember 2017? Do you remember who we beat? Yes, it was. The Nashville Predators, right? And I put up an image at that point of a penguin eating a dead catfish in its mouth. I thought it was terribly funny. I've enculturated. Unfortunately, at the very point at which I put it up, a group of students and youth from somewhere else in the diocese were visiting, and you'll never guess where they were from, Nashville. They didn't find it at all funny. And that's because they got the symbolism. They just watched their team get thrashed by ours. Here's the symbolism. The bear is associated with the Medo-Persian Empire, the lopsidedness of the bear, perhaps giving a nod to the inequalities in that bizarre coalition. And we know that they beat Babylon. We know that they came and they swallowed up the Babylonian Empire and carried off their thing soon after this dream. And so it's just a, a symbol of one symbol swallowing another, and it's something that we use in our own culture. It's an immediate revelation. Daniel is writing under King Belshazzar. He's the dude with the severed hand who gets swallowed up by Darius. And then, as he dreams this, and we're just getting used to this, we've seen a dream, we've seen a dream, he has another one, this time much further into the future. It's fast-paced, a leopard, verse 6, with four wings and four heads. Probably many scholars believe Alexander the Great, who had this ability to control and monitor the four corners of his empire very efficiently and had this much larger empire but ability to cover great distances swiftly, this leopard with wings and heads. And then just as we get our head around this future vision of this Greek empire superseding that, another one, another king, another beast, another land, verse 7, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong with iron teeth and stomping feet and horns and eyeballs and even eyeballs on the horns. All we know from our bedroom poster, symbols of power. Now, most people, when they see this, they they think it's Rome, far greater than any empire ever seen before. And uh, in the early days of the Roman Empire, most decidedly not at all fond of the people of God. And if you're being harmed by something like that, if something has a power over you and is abusing you like that empire did, where do you go? If you feel trapped and you feel overpowered, maybe you feel afraid, maybe you've been assaulted, where do you turn in a moment like that? Early in my ministry, there was a man in my church in a leadership position, and he was in conflict with another leader on the team. And I looked into it, And I concluded pretty quickly that he had been at least very threatening towards her. So I went to see him, and I went to see him in his house in this very tiny room. And I I sat down with him with the word, and I raised his behavior with him. 
And no sooner had I confronted him with his sin than he got up out of his chair and he got angry immediately, straight to rage. Big guy as well. And I'm sitting down in this chair and he's a big guy and he's looming right over me now. And he started yelling. And I can't yell into the mic like he yelled at me because blow the speakers, but he went mad and he said, you don't know who you're talking to, as I spoke to him. He said, I have the power over you to make you a hero or a total villain. He said, your ministry stands or falls on what I say. I thought crumbs. It's a bit much. (laughs) Evil always overplays its hand. It's clearly demonic. What is this power of which you speak that you have over me? I serve the king of kings. What power could you mean? I left. I went to the store. I bought a bottle of scotch. Bear with me. (laughs) And a card. I took them both right round to him. I said, thank you very much for your ministry. We don't need that kind of power in our church anymore. I know that he's been through four churches in the last six years with very similar encounters in each of them. The golden thread in each of those dysfunctional situations is, of course, him and his power. We do not stand or fall on the power of human beings. We stand on the word of God in the power of Jesus Christ alone. And when we feel trapped and when we feel overpowered, when we find ourselves being abused or cornered or in times of conflict, we look to God. That is where we turn. And verse 13 says quite clearly, behold, have a look. Look at God with the clouds of heaven, dot, 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 the ancient of days, the ancient one appeared. In Aramaic, uh, this word ancient one can also mean venerable one which uh, I guess means you could probably go to the Archdeacon Betsy, Venerable Archdeacon Betsy, if you wanted to. But if you turn to her, as I have done many times, she'll point you back to God, because she's a woman of God. That's where you turn when you're in a tricky situation. And God likes to show up. God in Scripture frequently appears in a cloud when he gives the Ten Commandments. There's a cloud when he leads the the people of God out of uh, Egypt and into the Exodus. Uh, He appears in a pillar of fire by the uh, the night and a pillar of cloud uh, in the daytime. It's a theophany. It's an appearance of God. It's a cloud, verse 13. It's fiery flames, verse 10. It's God showing up. In times of conflict, what you must do is you must seek the presence of God. And by the way, when you seek him, you will find he's already coming for you. He's already stepping in to save you. And Daniel says in verse 15, my spirit within me was anxious. He trembled. It's a word all to do with the rattling of a sword in its sheath. He's afraid. I don't know what he's afraid of. We debated this in the adult forum. Afraid of these visions, terrifying though they are, maybe afraid of the God who can overpower these overpowering beasts. Whatever it is that's uh, got him so anxious, I know how it feels because I was anxious. I was afraid. I was trembling in that room with that guy as he yelled at me. But like Daniel... I knew that I was not alone. I knew that I was resting in a power that was greater than the one he purported to have over me. 
Now, this fourth, fourth beast, it says several times here, uh, including verse 23, is different. And I've said this before, often with God, often in the Bible, a prophecy has several layers. Often a prophecy has uh, an immediate context and an ultimate context. It's possible for a prophecy to be about something quite physical and quite proximate in time to the moment when it's given, but also perhaps amplified in a more spiritual way uh, and then increased and fulfilled in a more complete way at some other time much later on in the future. And the immediate meaning of this dream is quite clear. Four kings, four empires, probably Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome. He dreamed about them. He got it right. We can have this great confidence in these prophecies because we see he dreamed it and we see that he got the dream right. But this fourth one is different. And we're being told there that as well as the immediate context, Rome There is something else about it, something more ultimate, something more scary, more big, more future-oriented, and that is the Antichrist, the enemy, the evil one, the one who is behind all forms of oppression and who must in the last days have a showdown with God himself. And we are in the last days now. The last days began at the cross and they continue till the return of Jesus Christ. And if we are now caught up in some sort of heavenly conflict between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Antichrist until he comes in a decisive way to put things right, my question to you is, can you read the signs? Do you know what to look for? Do you know where to look in culture to see signs of the enemy at work around us? Four signs, in fact of the kingdom of the Antichrist at work in the world right now. Verse 25, key verse, contains all four. Look at verse 25. First sign of the Antichrist at work in the world right now, this conflict of kingdoms as we live and breathe today, is blasphemy. He shall speak words against the Most High. We can see signs of this in our culture right now. The name of God has become so worthless, so denigrated, that more often than not, it's an expletive than a word of praise. I stub my toe. Jesus, we say. That is a name that we should worship. Uh, Many Christians, even in our own church, use the name of God as a weapon. For Christ's sake, do it. Let's not talk that way about our Savior. Nowadays, this sort of lazy text message exclamation, uh, abbreviated blasphemy, OMG. All right, okay, well, if we're going to blaspheme, let's at least do it well, all right? Let's not abbreviate our blasphemy and do it lazily. Let's, let's really go for it if we're going to use the name of God that way, shall we? And blasphemy is not just the misuse of God's name, an expletive when we're injured, a weapon to hurt other people, a sort of lazy text message device but it's also a twisting of the name and a twisting and a changing of what the name means, a misattributing to God features that really properly belong to us, attributing evil to the name of God when really we are the ones who have done it, blaming God for things we've done. If, if God were any good, I'd have got my own way. Mm-hmm. Good luck with that one, blasphemy. Second characteristic of this period Look for it. Second sign. Attrition. 
Just a wearing down of God's people. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. You're the saints. We are the saints. We are, you know, we are the children of God. A wearing out of Christians. Now, this word, it's, it's, it's an image. It's a word to do with a garment, a piece of clothing becoming threadbare. A sense, perhaps spiritually, that many of us are just tired and thin and worn out. Tired of the battle. Tired of speaking into a culture hell-bent and going its own way. Why is the church so tired? do you think? I'll tell you why the church is so tired. She is malnourished. She has stopped feeding on the Word of God. We don't even bring our Bibles to church with us. If we can't get them out in here, how likely are we getting them out anywhere else when no one's looking? We come to a conflict armed instead of the Word with a bag of our own documents that we wrote for ourselves and no Bible like going into battle armed with a rolled up newspaper instead of a sword like feeding before a marathon on candy floss cotton candy that's the English version it's just as disgusting five minute sugar rush and then you're done feed on the word stop being so malnourished Three, obfuscation. Couldn't think of a better word for it. He shall think to change the times. It might not sound too severe, changing the times. bit irritating when the clocks go forward, isn't it? But it's not the end of the world. What's he talking about? Uh, He's talking about the liturgical calendar here. God has ordained times and seasons of, of peace and joy and penitence and rest. There is in God's economy to be a pattern, an ebb and a flow of the year. But the church calendar has been changed and forgotten. Christmas and Easter are commercialized. Epiphany, Ash Wednesday, Pentecost, largely ignored. And instead of remembering the dead on All Hallows' Eve, evil is glorified instead at Halloween. Take a trip this month to Party City. Browse the aisles. Ask yourself which kingdom it looks most like in there. The symbolism is not at all difficult to read. Fourth sign, the power of the Antichrist looming and lurking around in our world in this present evil age, the law, a new morality. That which we once knew to be wrong, we now claim to be right. And when the word of God calls us on it and conflicts with the desires of our hearts, we close it up and we go our own way. And it gets worse before it gets better. As culture continues to slide, it says in verse 25, the holy ones, the people of God, shall be given into his hand, into the hand of the fourth beast, made to suffer. And we, the church, the saints, we need to understand these visions and these signs if we are to understand what to do when we see them. We need to understand what they mean so that we know how to behave when they appear. Every one of us will face at some point a decision point in our lives between God's way and the world's way at some point. When the world tells us we can grab what we like, we're going to have to decide whether that's really true. Every one of us will find ourselves caught up in a conflict of the two kingdoms. And it might be oh so subtle in a million different ways and we don't see it coming. Like a lobster in a bowl of cold water slowly heated and suddenly we find ourselves boiled alive or maybe 
it'll be sudden. Maybe it'll be massive. Maybe it'll be really obvious. And in either of those circumstances, we need to read the signs. The last few weeks, the Chinese government has turned its attention to the Chinese church and bulldozed many buildings and imprisoned many priests. And that church could be looking at what's going on to it and and looking at its wounds and licking its wounds and saying, God, where are you now? But she is not doing that because she has been feeding herself on the word of God. And instead of looking at her wounds, she's looking at her scripture and saying, Lord, thank you for the signs. Thank you for preparing us. And she's finding hope in her torment because God faithfully prophesied in astonishing detail the rise and the fall of these old empires. He got it right. He got Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome right. And the church in China is looking at what follows then in this different fourth beast and the ultimate meaning of its prophecy. And it's finding meaning today and saying, yeah, well, he told us to expect it. And that God that brought his people safely through the rise and fall of each of those kingdoms will bring us safely through this one as well. He still does. There's the good news. God is still at work, still seeking us. And he will come at a day and a time unknown. Not even the Son of Man knows it. But when he comes, verse 26, this fourth beast's dominion shall be taken away. The Antichrist is on borrowed time. His power ends. Ours does not. For God's people, what remains is eternal. And so the final question this morning is simple. How do we get it? How do we get on the right side? Well, in these last days, as as the world looks troubled, people increasingly look for a savior of any kind. And for some of us, it could be, you know, our own wits or our own wealth. Maybe for you, it's a panic room full of food and firearms. Maybe it's some nostalgic look back to a golden age. Maybe it's some future political cause of some kind. But go back to verse 13. Have a look. Here is where to look for hope. None of those things. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Well, hang about. If the clouds are a, a symbol of God, what is a bloke doing in the middle of them? Why is there a man in the God cloud? Well, it's a prophecy, it's a dream, it's a vision, it's a sign, it's a revelation, it's an apocalypsis. We need to know how to read the signs. This is an image of a God who steps down in human form to reveal himself to his people. A man who would suffer with us and suffer for us, who would come and decisively defeat the fourth beast and call up a people into himself and enthrone the people in himself. In our gospel reading, Jesus says that all, everyone, the four corners of the earth, all four winds, will see the Son of Man coming. It's a global salvation on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And as he is tried a few chapters later, he allows it to become plain that the Son of Man is none other than he himself. Look to Jesus. Build your life on Jesus. And as these kingdoms come into conflict... The saints need to know where to look. When we know where to look, no matter what power is ranged against us, no matter how abusive it may seem, no matter how unfair the slander may be, and the threats, the Christian looks to her Savior 
and asks a rhetorical question to which the answer is obvious. Whom then shall we fear? Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you through the pages of this difficult passage. You reveal to us through these signs that you are for us. And if, Lord, we've come into church today troubled by something in our world, maybe something in our own personal lives, if we've come in in despair or dissatisfaction, Lord God, would we look to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.